Hi, I'm Mike Okuda. And I'm Denise Okuda. And you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Almost every day, unless I make a very conscious choice, uh, I I write three sentences. Um, And the reason that I do that is because I have depression. Those three sentences are a way of checking in with myself to see whether or not I am not writing because uh, because it is depression, Mm -hmm. or whether I am not writing because there is a problem with the story, or whether I'm not writing because I'm just lazy. I'm like, I'm going to write three sentences, and sometimes those sentences are, I am tired, I am going to bed, I hate everyone. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. And you can find us every week in your headphones or through your car stereo or your computer. I don't know where you listen to us. Somewhere. You can find us somewhere. In in the cloud (laughs) somewhere, I'm sure. Yes. Somewhere online. Geek Dad. I don't know. Anyway, that's that's a lot of places. So we're joined this week again by another special guest, Shiri. How's it going? Good. This Good. one was so exciting. I was so excited to talk to her, and then it turned out I could have talked to her all day because she's fascinating. I love interviews like that. <laughs> That's the best. So you guys are in for a treat then. If they could have talked to her all day. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, so why don't we why don't we set We're it up? We're just gonna jump speak? right in, right? Yeah. All right. So. Uh, this week we're talking to Mary Robinette Kowal, who is a science fiction author. Um, and well, I mean, her writing kind of crosses genres a little bit. Um, but I'm gonna set it up with so I first quote unquote met Mary uh, while I was on the Joko cruise. Um, I've talked about that before. We've had a lot of guests who are from the Joko cruise or who were on it. Um, and she she did this panel. Um, with John Scalzi, Patrick Rothfuss, and Will Wheaton. And the name of the panel, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was just John and Pat and Will and Mary dick around on stage for an hour. I think it was something like that. And it was that's exactly what it was. It was just like, I mean, like, the first 20 minutes, I think, was just Will Wheaton and Scalzi arguing about burritos. Um, but then, like, the four of them basically just had, like, this, just a, just a fun conversation. Um and so that's sort of, I'll admit, that's sort of how I became aware of her writing. She is also a puppeteer. Um, she's worked with the Muppets. She's worked on a lot of different puppeteering properties. Um, and then as luck, I guess, I don't know, for it was fortuitous. I don't know, whatever you want to say. I was at a NASA social a couple months ago. Um, down in Florida at Cape Kennedy. It was for a, a SpaceX launch, and uh, she was there again. So she was just there as, you know, like one of the people attending. So, uh, you know, we, we spent two days down there. We got to walk all around um, uh, the, the, the NASA, and we got all these behind-the-scenes tours, and 
unfortunately the the launch was delayed and neither one of us could stay the three days later that it was rescheduled for so we both missed the launch um but uh yeah so that was a great experience so um after that you know we we kind of you know we were talking and we we quote unquote became friends or internet friends um and so you know one two three and here she is on the show I actually, though, first became sort of aware of her as a writer um, when she was at the Hugos in her Regency dress that she made, which we talked to her about during the interview. It's like, oh, that's cool. I wonder what she's written. Um, and essentially, the her first series um, called The Glamorous Histories is the way I usually see it described in the best sort of shorthand is Jane Austen with magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, for someone who swears up and down, she doesn't typically read romance. I am a huge Jane Austen fan. Mm -hmm. So I read the first book and it was great. Um, and then I read the rest of the series and it was, each book got increasingly fascinating and it sort of increasingly steeped in both the magic and historical detail, which was a neat combination. Um, they're kind of, they're. They're Jane Austen with magic, but also alternative history. Mm-hmm. Um, and then her, she's written some novellas. And then her most recent novel was Ghost Talkers, which is, uh, we didn't really get to talk to her about that one. It's set in World War One, And it's a similar kind of fantasy alt history where it posits uh, a spirit core. So a group of mediums who are speaking to ghosts right as they come off the battlefield to try to gather intelligence against the Germans, hmm. which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's an amazing writer. And I believe I'm not making this up her, um, the book she's working on now or her next novel is um, set during like an alternate 1950s, I believe. And it's, that's what she told us. Yeah. yeah and it's like, it starts five minutes before an asteroid hits Washington um, and part of the reason she was down at the NASA social was because it was research for her. She was um, she wanted to get into like the, the you know the launch control rooms and see and talk to a whole bunch of actual rocket scientists and, and astronauts and, and NASA people uh, and sort of pick their brains to make sure that what she was writing was more or less accurate. And she told us about this wonderful thing called Google Timeline that no longer oh my exists. God, yes, I forgot about that. And now that, that I know yeah. about it, I'm sad. <laughs> she said it, it used to essentially lay whatever period of history you were looking at out just in an outline for you. And then you could click on it and get more details about specific events. Yeah, um, it, it was like if you picked like a day like like or like May 1948, it would tell you what was happening around the world during that month. So if you were writing a story or doing research about something, say like I'm writing about what's happening in the U.S. government during that time, I could I could bring in other world events that would have been happening at the same time. So it's not anachronistic and it's I'm not just making stuff up. But that seemed like it was a, like an awesome tool to have, like everything right there. And she said for her Regency books, she had sort of picked a general time period for the first one. But then as she continued to research, she found other events on the timeline that were interesting to her yep. and she wow. used those as the catalyst for the rest of the series yeah yeah dang you google getting in the way of creativity i know right <laughs> man 
<laughs> all right guys we are going to go play that interview for you right now we hope you enjoy Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, it's awesome to have you. It's so great to um, be able to sit down and chat. This is going to be great. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I, I wanted to start um, at the beginning. So I know you've said in previous interviews that your parents sort of indulged you when you were younger. You you liked, you liked you wanted to do a little bit of everything, so they indulged you and let you do that. Um, but actually choosing to pursue a life in the arts, um, it's kind of fraught with uncertainty, putting it lightly, <laughs> right. to put it lightly. So I'm wondering, like, how supportive were your parents and friends when you said, you know what, this is, this is, I'm going to go to school for this. I'm going to make a career out of this. This is going to be my life. Uh, they were really supportive. Mom was an art, or, you know, until she retired, was an arts administrator. So um, not only were they like, yes, we, we, know that you can make a living at this because we have friends who do. Um, they were really great about talking to me about the practical realities of being an artist. Um, and and also, you know, let's be honest, they also were clear and, and very good about offering me financial support in the early years because it, you know, a, a career in the arts does take a while to establish. Uh, puppetry is definitely the easiest of the art fields to make a living at mm -hmm. because you can always do birthday party shows, but... <laughs> did you do a lot of those? Oh, I did in the beginning. Yeah. I don't do them anymore. Like, <laughs> like, I have to really like your child a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, you know, the... the, uh, the Not to cut you, to, to interrupt, but like the, uh -huh. the, the puppeteers and the, the magicians and the balloon artists, like, I feel for those people, man. Every time I see them at a party... Yeah, let, let me do a PSA on, on behalf of everyone who's ever had to perform at a birthday party. <laughs> Entertainment before cake. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine that, that you learned that the hard way, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, exactly as unpleasant and sticky as you think it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> but they were supportive. I mean, because that's... Usually, not usually. I mean, I, I have to imagine, you know, when you come home one day and you say, "Hey, I'm 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 gonna work with puppets," or "I'm gonna I'm gonna write books," you know, parents are gonna be like, as, as supportive as they want to be. There's probably a little part of them that's just like, "Oh, really? Really? Are you sure?" Yeah, Why did you ended up in nursing school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, the the thing that is. Uh, that's going on with, with my parents at any rate. And, and this is, I, I think something I would say to, to other parents is that you know, being supportive doesn't mean that you, you um, are just, yay, you should do this thing. And it doesn't mean, um, no, you shouldn't do this thing because it's going to crush you. It should mean sitting down and, and having a talk with them about, okay, so this is how you budget. Um, because anyone going into the arts, whether they are a writer or a puppeteer or an artist, is going to be a freelancer. Yeah. And so learning how to do, to uh, balance your time, learning how to budget, uh, learning how to recognize that you are going to have a really unstable income stream. Um, these are the these are the things that that parents can do. Um, let me let me give you a, a really concrete example of something mm -hmm. that my folks did. Um, uh, and this is, I think, a, a great example of who they are. So my dad was a 
uh, until he retired was a programmer, but he was a very enthusiastic amateur musician and, and still is. He plays the musical saw. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, he, you know, fiddle, uh, we grew up, I grew up in the South. So, you know, fiddle, old time bluegrass, all of that. Yeah. Um, I had an opportunity to, uh, to go up and audition for Sesame street. Mm-hmm. And dad said, and I couldn't afford it, couldn't afford to go and went to my parents in that way that feels awful when you're in your twenties Yeah. and was like, can, can you, and dad said, yes, I'm going to give you the money to do this, but I want to be clear that I don't think you're going to get it because there's a lot of people auditioning, but I don't want you to go through the rest of your life wondering what if, That's great. and it was, it was great because he, he helped me set realistic expectations um, and as well as making sure that I had the opportunity so that, that it wasn't that, that what if situation. And, and when we, when we talk about, um, privilege, uh, this, this is what people are talking about when they're talking about privilege. You know, I, I had the privilege of doing that because I had parents who could support me. Right. A lot of people who would be brilliant in the arts can't do it because they don't have that kind of, um, they don't have that safety net. net. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm, Man. I mean, it's, I, I also, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, I benefit from that privilege as well. I recognize that and I'm thankful for, for the opportunities that I've had, but it, you know, it is still, it's still wonderful to get that kind of support from your support network. You know, I mean that, that recognizing that other people don't have it doesn't make me appreciate my own any less. So, you know, and and to hear stories like that where, you know, I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing for a parent to say, you know, to be like, I don't think you're going to get it, but I don't want you to be filled with regret and, and, and not knowing that like, what if, you know, to like get rid of that, what if to just, so you could either either get it and be amazed or be able to move on and, and have that exactly. clean slate. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And and it's it's one of those things like, you know, anyone who's talking about privilege or recognizing their privilege, it's not that we want to give it up. It's that we want everyone to have yeah. that privilege. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's like everybody should be able to say, hey, I would like to go audition for Sesame Street and have someone say, yes, you know what? You should go audition for Sesame Street. Right. Here, have some have some money to go make that happen. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, Sherry, go ahead. No, that's okay. I was going to just backtrack because you mentioned balancing your time. So it's sort of backtracking and sort of shifting mm-hmm. gears. Um, I've seen pictures of you at the Hugo's wearing these beautiful Regency style dresses. Do you make them? Yes. How do you uh, find time to do that with everything else? <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I, uh, that's a really good question. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, So there's, there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, first is that a Regency dress is basically a nightgown. Um, it's, it, it is a very simple garment. Um, the second thing is that I need something, I need to be making tangible things and I love writing. I love that my career right now is predominantly writing or doing the audiobook narration. I'm doing very little puppetry these days. And uh, I get um, itchy and uncomfortable if I'm not making things. So the Regency dress gives me a tangible thing that I can make. And I also feel like it is important for people to, in in the arts, um, to have a hobby that they cannot make um, money at. 
or, or that doesn't exist to make money at. So writing was a hobby that became a career. Um, puppetry was a hobby that became a career. Uh, audiobooks, you know, I used to read to my niece and nephew, and now it's a career. Um, so the Regency dresses, I'm like, I cannot, this is not, I'm not going to, no, who would pay for this? And then I've had people offer me money to make them a dress. I'm like, no, no, because I've, I've done two trades with people and even barter. It's suddenly having that outside pressure and things. It's like, no, you, you actually need something that has no deadline yeah. that is existing just for you. So, so that's one thing is that, um, I, I do the Regency dresses, um, or now it's crochet, uh, for something that I can make that is tangible, a physical object. The other thing um, about the Regency gown, about the Hugos, is um, it looks spectacular because I cut a sari apart. Um, so all of the beading on it is not my work. My beading, the, the beading on it is the work of some unknown person in India who hand beaded and hand embroidered the heck out of that. And I, my claim to fame is that I decided where I was going to cut it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes say that, that that dress, which I am, I am justifiably proud of because I, I hand sewed that. Um, there is no machine stitching on that dress. Wow. Uh, um, but is also a, a fine metaphor for British colonialism, because I took a perfectly functional <laughs> Indian garment made by someone who was not paid appropriate wages, probably, uh, cut it apart, destroying it to turn it into a British dress for which I receive all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the dress has this deep meaning that's like, that's so, right? so appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it goes on the cover of my novel. So... <laughs> Yeah, uh, but I love the dress. I wear it whenever I can conceivably be like, yeah, no, it's totally appropriate to wear this Regency dress at this event. <laughs> if you've made it, I think any event is appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just terrified every time I wear it because I'm like, I re I'm so afraid of spilling things on it. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, he says that now, but he hasn't seen the green Twilight wig yet. <laughs> That, I'm working. that you're you're making that I'm making. <laughs> you, can, you can wear it anyway. Anyway, uh, totally. Yeah. Well, yes. See, okay, that segues nicely into my next question for you, which was, um, I've I've read the glamorous histories and I I love them, and they made me admit that I do read romance. So kudos. Good. Good. <laughs> um, and I also read Ghost Tucker, and so I'm noticing that your books are set in very definitive historical periods like there's no question when and I'm kind of curious does do you choose the period ahead and write the book or does something else you're doing kind of pique your interest and then the period kind of chooses you in that weird writer way that things have their own lives right uh it's a it's a back and forth a little bit of both when I am researching an era I I generally know, oh, I want to do something in this time period because, um, you know, like I, I knew I wanted to do a Regency, but the Regency is like 35 years. I mean, the Regency itself is not that long, but the period we call the Regency. Uh, so it's, it, you know, that's 
fashions change. There's all sorts of different things happening. So what I do then is I start to drill down in my research and look at uh, more specifically when I want to set things. So Shades of Milk and Honey um, does not have a clearly defined time, actually. Um, I Because I, I wrote it as part of NaNoWriMo, and I'm just like, I want to write Jane Austen with magic. As soon as Tor asked me for a, if, uh, when they, they, bought the book they said is there a second book and i was like why yes of course there is <laughs> always the uh, correct answer <laughs> yes <laughs> and at that point um i i did more research um and real and looked at napoleon escaping from elba and when that happened which then told me when shades of milk and honey was happening and i went back and i tweaked fashions a little bit to make it to make it more specific, although I think it's I still never mention a date in Shades of Milk and Honey. But then once I have uh, Elba locked down, um, uh, Google used to have this really great resource, which I have not found a replacement for, called Google Timeline, where you it gave you the news um, in a timeline, so you could say, okay, so what's going on in 1816? What are the traumatic <sighs> historical that happened in 1816. It was fantastic. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's continued it. It was a Google Lab thing. <sighs> it me deeply saddened. Um, so, uh, so I uh, I saw the the year without a summer uh, for 1816, um, and uh, and then and that gave me um, you know gave me all sorts of really great fodder. Um, and then when I did, at this point, I have now established that each book takes place a year apart from the, the previous one. So then I'm like, okay, well, what happens in 1817? I've got them going to Murano because I want to deal with glass. <gasps> Lord Byron is in Murano <laughs> in Venice? Oh. <laughs> um, so it's that kind of thing. Um, the, the books that I have coming out next year um, are also alternate history. Uh, they're not historical fantasy because they are going to be my first science fiction books, but they're set in 1952. Um, but the events of the world change pretty much immediately because the book starts two minutes before an asteroid slams into Washington, D.C. So uh, technically the Chesapeake Bay, which is actually far worse. Yeah. Uh, water strike worse. As we know from our visit to NASA. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, mean, I, I wanted to ask, um, so you mentioned that you don't do a whole lot of puppetry now, but um, you've got a lot else going on. You're, you're insanely busy. Do you have like a daily routine for writing? Is there is there something like when you wake up? Are you one of those people who like, apparently not. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't. Um, just in case you couldn't tell from the, the manic laughter. Um, I, uh, I wish. Um, what I have is a lot of coping devices and mechanisms for the fact that I have a random schedule. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I use tools like Habitica, which uh, turns your to-do list into a role-playing game. 
Um, I use another tool called The Fabulous, which is a ridiculous name, but it's uh, it's very good. It's a very good productivity focusing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, about the only thing that I do reliably, uh, although I didn't this morning, <laughs> is that uh, I get up, I meditate, I make a to-do list. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's I get up, I feed the cats, I meditate, <laughs> I have breakfast, and then I do a to-do list um, in that order. And... Um, that's pretty much the only thing that I do consistently. Yeah. The The rest of it is my schedule is so random. Like we just spent the week in Denver, um, partly because I was at Denver Comic-Con. So, you know, trying to, to work in time to write around that schedule. And I was also visiting family at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, today I, I have... I'm talking with you. Um, I'm talking with someone else in the afternoon. Um, at some point in there, I will get writing done. Um, pretty much, oh, the only other thing that I would say I'm, I'm fairly consistent at uh, is that on the days that I write, I do not go online first. On the days that I go online first, I wind up not writing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I. oh, and for the words, mm, the app, the the. It, it's an RPG in which you're, uh, the, the mechanic for defeating monsters is the number of words that you write and the time in which you write them. It is so good. Ooh. Sherry, that sounds right up your alley. It does. I use write or die, but that just throws spiders at you if you don't Oh, this finish. is, yeah, no, this is so much better because a monster can, can beat you. And then, you know, where are you, you lose health points. Where are you on the leaderboard? It's disappointing. But if you beat them, you get gold and gems. <laughs> you can get, you can get, you know, you can dress your avatar in new and interesting things. There I, are quests. It's good. I have to I'm say, to that. it is so refreshing to hear you say that, like, you know, you don't, you're not one of those people who who wakes up with the sun or or says i i won't move out of this chair until i've written you know five thousand words or whatever it is you know because when you hear those stories or you talk to people like that it makes everything else just seem so inadequate (laughs) and 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 to hear somebody like you who is realistic with with you know i have a crazy busy schedule i have a thousand and one things i need to get done i have more than just writing that has to get done so i'm I, i can't i can't just sit here for eight hours every day, you know, every morning, every day, reliably, because that's just not realistic. So yeah, it is great to hear stories like that, or, or that everybody works so differently. Yeah, and and I think that one of the things that can get, you know, we we'll, we'll talk in aphorisms all the time, like a writer writes, or you must write every day, and right, um, but in chair and all of that, and. And these are all pieces of advice that are useful in the context in which they were given uh, to the person to whom they were given. And then they get repeated as if they are dogma, you know, as if it's they're irreducible, unbreakable things. And I think they can be really damaging. Like, um, you know, I I, uh, and this is one of the other reasons that I don't I I like to write every day. Oh, I, I think actually the one other thing I'll say is that almost every day, um, unless I make a very conscious choice, uh, I, I write three sentences. Um, and the reason that I do that is because um, I have depression. And sometimes I cannot 
those three sentences are a way of checking in with myself to see whether or not I am not writing because uh, because it is depression Mm -hmm. or whether I am not writing because there is a problem with the story or whether I'm not writing because I'm just lazy. And so if I'm like, I'm going to write three sentences, and sometimes those sentences are, I am tired, I am going to bed, I hate everyone. Uh, More often, those three sentences turn into five or a paragraph or a page. But it's it is a it's a measuring tool for myself. And, um, and it's a useful one, but I don't think it's useful for everybody. When I was trying to do the uh, write every day, um, and and the depression was really bad. It just made it worse because then I felt like a failure. Yeah. And as as creative types, you know, we define ourselves by our art, by our work. And when you can't do that work, uh, it just it, it messes with your self definition in ways that it you know when I was dealing with depression and doing sales for a river cruise dinner boat, the fact that I had trouble getting up and going to work was inconvenient. But it didn't mess with my self-definition at all. Right. Right. Um, shifting gears. <laughs> I, I hate to do that. Don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> this is depressing, this topic. <laughs> uh, um, well, no, but it's, I mean, you you mentioned, um, you know, that the, the, your next book ha- is going to be slightly different, different setting, different yeah. different genre. Um and you, we also mentioned that you know you and I we we met at the NASA Social and you were doing quite a bit of research there. You asking just a thousand and one questions, which was amazing to watch. Um, you know that process happen. But is that is that par for the course for you when you're researching a new topic? Just a million questions to anybody who uh-huh. will listen. Yeah, yeah. I um, so being a writer is one of the best jobs if you are a naturally curious person. Um, it's one of the reasons that I do historical stuff because I am like, my brother is actually a historian. He has his PhD in, in history. Um, and my dad is the world's most curious man. Uh, so, and you know, mom was an arts administrator and what she taught me was that the other person is always more interesting than you. So I come preloaded with a couple <laughs> of things. <laughs> Like as we are sitting here doing the podcast, I I can see on on the video which you know your listeners are not privy to. They're like, oh, you you have a a, a blue microphone. What's <laughs> that? And what's the art on your wall? I can't quite see that collection of four prints. That looks really cool. Um, so it's it is it is it is basically a way to channel my natural impulses and make them socially acceptable yeah i like that (laughs) (laughs) um was was that experience though the the nasa social was that was that was it what you awesome was it was awesome but was it what you expected um yes uh only because i had a friend who had previously gone and uh she had told me the kinds of things, the kinds of uh, uh, contact that we would have the, with the scientists, and yeah. um, so I, I wanted, you know, I could have stayed there all day, yeah, um, and asked them. I could, I could still be there um, asking them <laughs> questions. In fact, just hiding in the corner, uh, you know, just oh, hiding God, in the corner, still just here. periodically <laughs> popping out, going, "Excuse me, that that thing you just touched, what, what does that do?" <laughs> Uh, so big red button. What does the big red button do? <laughs> Can we push it? <laughs> um, but 
yeah, so the the books, the books were actually had already been finished uh, when I showed up. So what I was looking for were sensory details, um, and then uh, also things that I, um, things that you can't get out of books, which mostly are sensory details or or just random pieces of trivia that no one thinks about yeah. putting into a book because it's part of their daily life, and so they just they just forget. Right. Well, I, there was one point, and I think I don't really remember when it was. Maybe it was we were in one of the um, the launch control rooms, mm-hmm. and I remember you said some. You said that like, oh, I I have to go back and change an entire scene now because of something that you learned there by either talking to somebody or seeing something firsthand. How often does that happen? Like you you've written a scene or a chapter or. And, and you think it's done, and you're like, oh, that, that's good, I, I really really like that. But then something happens, like you read something else, or you hear something else from somebody, and you say, oh, that's all wrong, actually. And you have to go back yeah. and change. Um, distressingly often, but not as often as, as uh, not so often that it's, it's depressing and debilitating. Um, so in, uh, so in, in Glamour and Glass, since since you mentioned having read that one, um, there was a scene in which uh, my main character's husband was being held captive in a chicken coop. Mm. And it was um, absolutely essential to the plot, but chicken wire is not invented for another 70 years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I had to go back and change that entire scene. Um, and it was already written uh, to to try to come up with something that he could be held in. And because he was now held in a different place, the escape plan was totally different. So it was things like that happen all the time. The the one that I said I have to go back and rewrite in um, in the the calculating stars uh, faded sky, fortunately, is not um, not it's not plot stuff that I have to redo. Um, it's just the way the plot unfolds. Right. So I have to have slightly different people in the room. Um, I have to lay the room out in a slightly different way. Uh, things like that. Because when you start looking at the, the launch control facilities and things like that, you're like, Oh, there's a reason this room is laid out like that. So even if this is being built in Kansas instead of Florida, because Florida, you know, mm-hmm. tidal waves and all that, um, they would still build it the same way. Yeah. So I, I need to go back and reconfigure that. Yeah. Um, does having, <clears throat> excuse me, does having done a more physical art like puppetry help you visualize those sort of chains of events better? I don't know. Um, because I don't know what it would be like to write without having been a puppeteer. Uh, I know that I am very concerned about uh, space and and what is anatomically possible. Um, and I know that I am driven by body language and more conscious of body language uh, than some of my my other writer peers. Um, but I don't know I don't know if if I would if I went into puppetry because those are the things I gravitate towards anyway, or if I now gravitate towards them because I have the training. I, it's a chicken and egg thing, and I don't actually know. Um, although technically the egg came first because the chicken is a mutation, but 
Um, so, okay, we're talking about puppetry again. Um, right. So, when I was reading about how you got your start in puppetry, I was intrigued to learn that it involved a church with a puppet ministry program. And I was just wondering oh, yeah. if you could explain what that is. So, puppet ministry is uh, a huge, huge industry in the United States. I've never even heard uh, of this. Well, you should go to church more. I, I, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, basically what puppet ministry is, is it, it is recognizing the power of puppetry and narrative and storytelling as ways to convey, um, convey stories. So typically, uh, what you're doing is you're doing puppet shows that are, uh, stories out of the Bible or that are, are modern day adaptations and parables of some sort. Um, so like we did David and Goliath and things like that. Um, and they're, they're moving mouth puppets, so um, so like Muppets, mm-hmm. uh, and we were usually uh, almost all of the puppet ministry uh, is working to a pre-recorded track, which means the dialogue and everything else is on tape, and you just lip sync along to it. And some of it is you do for your own church. Some of it is uh, outreach to other communities. And then it, it also, I think, serves the function, which worked with me, of drawing youth into the to the church so i i actually joined a church so i could be on the puppet team really yeah which might not be the best reason for joining a church (laughs) or or is maybe the best reason for joining. i was gonna say i think it could be a great Uh, reason yeah um so puppeteering and puppetry i think there's a lot of um I guess, misconceptions about, you know, people, people look at puppets and they say, oh, it's Sesame Street, it's kid stuff, anybody can do it, you just stick your hand in a sock and, and move. Um, I mean, what's, if there were one misconception about puppetry that you could clear up for everybody, like if you could just tell, tell everybody in the world one thing about puppets that would just change their mind or just one thing that you'd want them to know that they, you know, that maybe they think otherwise, what would that be? Um, puppetry is acting. Mm. Uh, the, the question that I get that annoys me the most is, have you ever done any real acting? Um, and I'm like, yeah, with a puppet, basically puppetry is, we are doing the Ginger Rogers of dance. Um, we have to do all of the things that, uh, a, a meat actor or fleshy has to do, Mm -hmm. which is, we have to sing. (laughs) Yeah, we have we have all sorts of derogatory terms. Um, you know, fleshy, plushy, meat actor, puppet actor. So, what tool are you using to act with? Um, so, uh, so we have to do all of those things. We have to act. Um, we have to sing. Uh, we have to dance, uh, and we have to do it while maintaining a yoga position for forty-five minutes with a five-pound weight on our hand. Yeah. Um, if if you're doing that's Actually, all of puppetry involves really terrible yoga positions that make my physical therapist cry. But um, but we have to do that, and we have to provide a convincing performance that uh, that moves an audience. We have to bring an inanimate object to life right. and act at the same time. Right. I, I the closest I've come to to actually watching, you know 
Masters in Action, you know, like puppets is my my daughter um, does these little interviews where she interviews famous people that that she likes. And when she was five, um, she interviewed Leslie Carrera Rudolph, who does Abby Oh, Kadabi. yes, Leslie. Yes, so she's fantastic. She's amazingly sweet. And so she did two interviews. My daughter, she interviewed Leslie, and then she also interviewed Abby Kadabi. Oh, well, fun! And it was super fun. It was an amazing experience. But you know, all I did was hold the camera. And so I'm watching my daughter, but then, like, I'm watching Leslie, you know, who's off camera, holding Abby Cadabby up, moving her arms with sticks, you know, interacting with my daughter while all at the same time watching the little monitor so she can make sure she knows where the puppet is on screen and interacting mm-hmm. with the other person on screen. It blew my mind because this was just a little five minute interview she was doing to be nice to a kid. This was not on set, you know, when there's a thousand and one other things going on to distract you and to keep in your, you know, for your performance that you have to keep in mind. So, um, yeah, I have no doubt it is acting. It is a skill. It takes a lot of practice. I'm sure it is not something that you like, Oh, I'll just put a sock on my hand and go talk to Ernie. You know, like that's not at all what it is. No. And you will get people who think that all the time. I I just compare it to, uh, learning to play the violin. Like anyone can pick it up and make a sound. Absolutely. Um, and you can even get to a point that you can make music on it. But are you making music that anyone else wants to hear? Right. You know, the difference between being able to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and the Brandenburg Concerto is years. Right. And it's the same thing with puppetry. You know, it's, um, it is a special, it's, it's still acting, but it is a specialized skill set of acting. Uh, I, I, the number of times that I've been involved in some project and someone has said, well, um, well, why don't we just, you know, we can just get people from the community to work with you. I'm like, yeah. no, no. I'm like, would you say, hey, we're going to do musical theater. Let's just get some people from the community and hand them some instruments. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like not even in the music man, which is a musical about doing that. Do the kids sound good when they finally just get handed instruments? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's- do you? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you find that you use your puppetry skills, you know, if you're, say, at a part in a novel where you're stuck, do you find yourself using that other skill set to unstick yourself? Yes. um, Although mostly from the character end. um, uh, There are four principles that make puppets look alive. And those four principles translate directly across onto the printed page. Um, Focus indicates thought. What your character is looking at is what your character is thinking about. So sometimes when I'm stuck, I'm like, okay, so what is the most important thing? What is catching my character's attention right now? And I will, I will drill into focus. And it's not just what they're looking at, but you know, all of the sensory details. Um, breath indicates emotion. You know, how long are they lingering on something? Um, internal motivation is the idea that the puppet can move it by itself rather than being moved by someone. So with with writing, that usually comes into free and direct speech, you know, learning, understanding, using that tool to, to convey what's important to the character. And then meaningful movement, which is the idea that uh, when a puppet moves, it should mean something. And the same thing is true for a character on the page. So usually I will, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm flailing a little bit, What is important to my character? What's my motivation? Um, uh, What am I noticing 
Um, how am I reacting to it? What is catching my attention? Uh, what's the internal motivation? What is my internal response to it? And then what is the action that I take? What does that prompt? So I'll, I'll, it doesn't always happen in like that nice little sequential chain, but usually I can reach for one of those, those acting tools. And, uh, you know, it, what I'm doing on the page is I'm, I'm still, for me, I'm still acting. It's just that the inanimate object that I'm manipulating is a construct made of words in your imagination, but I'm still doing and trying to do the, trying to provoke the same things. I'm still using the same tools. I'm still trying to build the same kinds of images in your head. I just don't have an inanimate object to wave in front of you to do them. Um, if you're being honest with yourself, how, I mean, have, have the awards that you've won, notably the Hugos, have have they affected how you write? Like, do they raise? Have you raised the expectations for yourself because of those and because of the accolades and the awards? Uh, it's very easy to do that. Um, thank heavens, I come from a theater background, and I have parents who are really smart. Um, no, um, they don't. But only because I have been taught to not let that happen. Yeah. Uh, it's really easy to do, and I think the the biggest mistake any writer can make or any creator is to compare what they are working on to someone else's finished product, which includes their own finished product. And so like when I'm starting something, of course it looks like crap. Of course it's not as good as, you know, whatever Hugo award-winning thing we're talking about because the Hugo award-winning thing was finished and edited. Um, Yeah. It didn't look like that when I started it. It, yeah. it looks like ass. <laughs> you have a lot of old school typewriters? I do. I have 19 of them. <gasps> Which is your favorite? Um, my favorite is my Smith Corona, or not Smith Corona, excuse me, is my Corona Special, uh, Corona Number 3. It's a folding typewriter. This is a typewriter that uh, Hemingway used when he was reporting the Great War. Uh, it folds. My special is uh, forest green and has an extended keyboard that has mathematical symbols on it. Um, so it's very pretty, super cool, incredibly lightweight, and, um, and and again, I will say very pretty. I have a royal black because that's uh, also what Hemingway used. <laughs> yes. Do you, do, you do you use them? Do you use them? Yeah. Um, sometimes, yeah. I... Uh, I will write at, if you catch me at a convention, um, where I'm doing a fundraiser, I will bring the computer, the typewriter and, uh, write stories on demand. Um, so one page stories, uh, which are a great deal of fun. Um, I will sometimes break them out if I'm, um, you know, like for letters or, or sometimes if I'm, uh, to get a, particular feel or mood for a story I will use the typewriter rather than a computer because it changes my rhythms but most of the time I am on the computer um I know you've got to run but let me can I ask one last question yeah what keeps you up at night what keeps me up at night yeah um do you mean worry or procrastination about not going to bed because I'm doing a thing anything I mean if if something's keeping you up at night what is it usually um, someone is wrong on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> that is, no, I will not allow it. That, you cannot stay awake because of that. 
Oh, like you don't. Uh, no, man. Internet's always wrong. And I just let it, I let them stay wrong. It's not my job to correct it. Uncorrectable. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm seriously, I am a, I am a night owl. And sometimes um, that is when the writing starts. Yeah. And so I will stay up because I'm, I'm on a roll and, and I just, I'm like, all right, I'm on a roll. Let's just go with it. Mary, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, it was great talking to you guys. I've seen, I'm not sure how good it works, but I, you know how you get those Facebook ads that advertise like a product to you. I've seen one, it's like a keyboard, but it's, it's like a typewriter. Like it feels manual when you press it. It's I'm a computer it every keyboard. time I how, see isn't that cool? I mean, it's probably it's through a Facebook ad, so it's probably garbage. But <laughs> Tom Hanks actually had this app called Hanks Writer, H A N X. That you used your you know your phone keyboard, but it looked like a typewriter. Did it make the clickety clack sounds? It did. And when you got to the end of the line, did it go ding? Because <laughs> that would get annoying. I think it would. It would. I guess that is true. Mine doesn't actually ding at the end you know what would be great is if it, you get to the end of the line and it dings and you actually have to like smack the side of your phone or ipad <laughs> for, for like go to go to the next line like you have to you have to do with the typewriters and then to backspace i forget i i i'm too i'm too young for type to even remember like i i don't even think there was typewriters around i guess when yeah, i was you had to have that little younger. crappy white paper but how so do you, you to, like, how do you go back yeah yeah you would you would move back the, like the typewriter would physically go back Right. So you could reach or you'd have to wait it out. You had to wait it out. But I remember we had like these. It was like they were almost it like was a ribbon moth, or something. It was almost like moth wings. It was very powdery, and you yeah. slid that in, and you had to hit the same letter again, and it would like smack that white powder onto the page or over it. just a letter, so it would basically be whiting it out. Ooh, technology. Yeah, and you had to do that for every <laughs> single letter of every word you wanted to erase. Even when it was an electric typewriter. Yeah. Wow. So be thankful you're living today. <laughs> Jamie, you were so old. I know. <laughs> Jamie was like, I used to type on the Gutenberg you know, press. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Th- I, I used to. T- oops. I used to type on typewriters for fun. Like we had a couple right. that were like, I was. I had a computer from his far back as i remember so like in elementary right. school we had one of those huge honking apple two e's like it was enormous yeah. so like i remember i would write school reports and stuff on that um but i do remember we had a couple different typewriters and i would just sit down because i liked the sound of it and i liked the feel of yep. it i thought it was really cool remember the epson printers the paper that had the holes on the side that you like yeah, oh, yeah, the, strip off? the dot matrix printers we had one dot of those, the loudest <laughs> printers in the world can i tell you yeah they story? are can i tell you a quick story about that so yep. Out of college, um, we're talking like, um, when did I work there? So from like 2000 to 2003, I worked at the Holocaust Museum here in D.C., the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I worked in the collections department. And one of my duties was um, they, they had a lot, a large part of the collection was on microfilm, like the document collection was on microfilm. And every, if you guys remember microfilm, um, they were these I huge do. rolls, but they were each stored in this little box. And so part of my job was to transfer the entire microfilm collection to like these acid-free boxes. 
but then every box had to have a label because they were all stored in these big filing cabinets, so in case researchers came in, we could find them. The only printer that we could use to print these labels was a dot matrix printer. <laughs> so at my desk, I had a huge, honking huge dot matrix printer with all that paper like stacked up on the floor because it was all one huge sheet that would just <laughs> yeah. keep feeding into the yeah. printer. And where I worked was not, most of the time I was not actually at the museum. I was at like the separate offsite warehouse where we stored everything, which was a warehouse. So it was this huge open space with concrete floors, concrete walls. We had a separate little area for our offices, but there was no ceiling. So we were like open to the warehouse. So every time I printed, because you know how loud dot matrix printers are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The entire warehouse would echo with the dot matrix. And I mean, this was 17 years ago, 15, like 15 to 17 years ago, but it was still the 21st century. And even then right. I was like, why the hell do we still have dot matrix printers? <laughs> Because it was so annoying. Every time we got a new shipment of, of microfilm in, it would be like 300 rolls of microfilm. Like, great, now i got to print 300 labels, and it's going to take all day of this annoying sound right at my desk. And then they would get jammed, and the little oh, yeah. margin, yeah. the perforated margin would jam up, and you'd have to do the whole thing over again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was my first out-of-school job. That, it was a lot the of way you just described that, that, that sounds like if it was quiet and all you could hear was the printer, that sounds like like something you would see like the worst most boring job in the world you're like you're yeah. sitting there you're Ladies you don't need the sound your tax dollars at work yeah. or the opening scene of a horror movie yeah right <laughs> yeah just silence on a printer going now that was 2000 to 2003 i have no idea if they're still doing it that way but it would not surprise me if they were it wouldn't surprise me either they're still probably putting still using, shit on, on on microfilm and still probably still using windows 3.1 can you even find <laughs> microfilm readers anymore those big blue things, remember? We, uh, we had them. I, I think they're at the library. My job, was, my work was getting rid of an overhead projector, so I brought it home. The kids play with it. Nice, nice. They like project stuff onto big pieces of yeah, paper. Yeah, and... that's what they're for, man. <laughs> All right, guys. <laughs> Thank you for coming back week after week. If you haven't shut it off already. <laughs> yeah. We are the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. I am Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. I'm Sherry at SW Sondheimer on Twitter. And should I spell it again? Do you it. guys heard <laughs> last time. Uh, <laughs> at D A N T E B R I N on Instagram. All right. And we will see you next time. Well, we won't see you, but we will speak we'll to you talk next to time. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Have a good day. Take care. Week, year. Bye. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.